This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello and welcome to the latest Analyzing Anfield podcast from the Liverpool Echo. I'm your guest host, Matt Addison, with Josh Williams alongside me. We're going to be talking all things Jonathan David very shortly, plus a little bit of transfer news from elsewhere across the Premier League too. First though, the easiest question of them all, Josh, how's things? How are you getting on, mate? Doing okay, mate, yeah. It's nice to be in the, um, well, away from the podcast and host seat for the second series of the week. Um you got big boots to filmmakers. I think I think Guy Clark is a specialist, really, isn't he? He certainly is. Yeah, I read a, a few of the comments were were very complimentary about Guy. So uh, yeah, no uh, no shortage of, of those to get through. But uh, we'll move on to to sort of talking about Jonathan David straight away, mate. I know it's a a player that I'm really sort of interested by and, and keen to to see your perspective on. Really, he's someone that I've not seen a huge amount of, but what I have seen seems to to be pretty good. Obviously, we know he was on Liverpool's list. Last summer, when they went for Diogo Jota, it, it does make quite a lot of sense that these links have resurfaced. Yeah, well, Liverpool aren't linked with very many at the moment. Um, and some of the ones they are linked with, you can almost rule out pretty quickly. But I think with, with this lad, I am inclined to believe Liverpool will will have something there. They will be interested in this kid, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I think it was Paul Gorse last season reported that he was on Liverpool's shortlist when we eventually signed Jota alongside the likes of Ishmael Assar and players like that. Um, and I think maybe one of the reasons Liverpool haven't really gone there yet is because he is considerably younger than than the typical Liverpool forward that gets signed. Usually we target players around the age of 24, because around the age of 24, you've still got about five, six years ahead of you to develop and turn into a, a monster, basically. But by the age of 24, you're already at a point where you can deliver every week for Liverpool. David's still only 21, so it remains to be seen whether he's at that level yet. And even if you look at his contract as well, he only moved to Lille last summer and he's contracted for another four years. And when he did move, it was for about 25 million. So I suppose I'm listing reasons already why it's probably a difficult deal to do. But despite that, looking at the player, the way he plays, nature of his game, what he could become and stuff, he just looks like the type of player that Liverpool will have an interest in. And interestingly as well, he would probably be the first proper central striker that Liverpool have signed under Klopp. Liverpool have chased forwards really above everything else. You know, Mane, Salah, Jota. Firmino was before Klopp, but even Firmino is not really that type of player. Klopp was quick to get rid of Christian Benteke, I think. So David would be the first player in that mould. Um but once you look at him play, you can you can kind of see why he's a player who fits that bill compared to others. Is he one, do you think, that could maybe play out wide as well? I think certainly at Genk, he tended to play a little bit more on the wings. I don't think since he's moved to France, he, he's done that a lot. But just from the very small amount of him that I've seen, he kind of seems like one who would primarily come in through the middle, but could play wide if you needed him to. And, I think that's pretty much, in my mind, to a T, what Liverpool need this summer is they've obviously got Jota, Mane and Salah who can play wide. Obviously, all of them can play through the middle, but their preference is, is to play on the wings. To sort of have the opposite of that with one eye on possibly replacing Firmino as well at some point in the future, it, it kind of seems like the right way round for that to be primarily central, but with the option of, of playing wide as well. Yeah, well, I think he's. it looks like he would have that to his game. He looks like the type of player who could 
could play out wide. Um, he's quick, quick enough to dart in behind. I would say, um, short, sharp bursts when he's on the ball and stuff, even when he's off the ball as well. Um, and another thing as well, one thing I've been particularly noting lately is is the, the two footed nature of certain players. Liverpool tend to be linked with an attack. Um, so you've got Sadio Mane, who we know is extremely two footed. I think when I checked, he's actually he prefers his right, but it's about seventy five percent of the time. Obviously, a fifty fifty would be a fifty fifty split. Fifty percent would be you know fifty fifty split. So seventy five percent of the time, that's that's quite two footed. And if you look at Jota, Jota is about sixty seven percent two footed, which is even even more than Mane is. And then Liverpool obviously got linked fairly recently to Jared Bowen, and that was one of the things I flagged when we talked about him a little bit. He's a player, actually, that I'm recently uh, believing a bit more, um, but we won't go there on that one. But when it comes to how two-footed he is, I think he, I think Bowen's about 79% two-footed. And most players are just in the high 80s, 90s. But Liverpool seems to really be interested in two-footed forwards. And if you look at Jonathan David, he prefers his right foot, but 76% of the time, which is very, very similar to Mane, actually. So, again, you know, if you're playing out wide, if you're playing on either flank, really, it really does help if you're equally capable with your left as you are with your right and, and vice versa. So, yeah, I think when it comes to him being a bit of a versatile striker, who can play on both flanks, maybe, you can offer a threat from out wide as well as through the middle. He does seem to be a bit of a versatile option, even though, as you say, since he moved to Lille, he's played up front virtually every week. But I did write about Lille, um, Towards over the summer, actually, when I think it was Christophe Galtier was getting linked with Everton, he was in charge of Lille last season. Obviously, won the league, and Lille very much played a a four four two system with two strikers. So Jonathan David had a strike partner. He was up front with, I think, Barak Yilmaz is a thirty five year old who scored plenty of goals. So we had a good partner with him. Whether he'd be equally effective when he's on his own, leading the line on his own, is another story. But yeah. He looks like an interesting player, and as I said, the two two footed nature of his game is is something that I'm picking up on lately that Liverpool tend to really value. Value. Yeah, it's, it's something we saw a lot, isn't it, with Diogo Jota last season in particular. I know, obviously, Mane, like you say, is is one that kind of feels very two footed. But I think Jota in particular, there was, I think, lots of, of goals with his his weaker foot, lots of goals with his head as well, which is is a slightly strange one for someone of, of his kind of build and, and height. But uh, yeah, certainly that is is a big tick in in his box. I think another big tick as well for me is the the fact that he went in, as you say, he's only been in France for one season, but. You know, to, to get 13 goals, Lille won the title. There's a couple of boxes being ticked there as well. And he can obviously get the numbers. He can do the kind of role in the versatility that we've talked about. And he's a winner as well. He's, he's been part of a team which is at the top end of a league, obviously. They've beaten Paris Saint-Germain to the title. That's what Liverpool need their players to, to have experience of, to, to be winners, to be at the top end of the table. It, it will translate it a little bit if he was to move to, to Anfield. Well, another thing that I flagged when it comes to Liverpool targets, Liverpool don't tend to jump on players who are who have just burst onto the scene. Basically, they like a fair fair amount of numbers behind the player, so that they've got a big enough sample to judge him on. Basically, and even though David's only twenty one, he's got the whole of last season under his belt in League One, the whole of the season before under his belt in the Belgian top flight, and the whole of the season before that 
as well. So that's three full seasons. And in all of those seasons, this is league only. He scored double figures. So 13 last season, as you mentioned, for Lille. Season before, he got 18 for Genk. And season before that, he got 12. So overall there, I should say as well, three of those goals have been penalties. So over the course of three seasons there, he's got 40 non-penalty goals and 15 assists to his name. So that's a, an attacker that you could probably, you could label has got a fair amount of output to his game. Like another player who I've seen linked with Liverpool and it certainly looks very, very exciting, who were flagged on this pod actually, is Jeremy Doku. But if you look at Doku's numbers, nowhere near as effective when it comes to actually putting the ball in the net and actually delivering with output and, you know, impacting score lines and stuff like that. He's obviously extremely dangerous. But Liverpool usually want players in the final third who are just absolute output merchants. Um, seems to be a bit of a catchphrase for this pod, that one. And I think David is not not far off that, really. I think you could you could probably put that on his name, considering he's, he's had three consecutive seasons there with double-figures goals. So, yeah, he's one to watch. And, you know, in addition to that as well, what I will say is just another little note that tends to slip under the radar. He speaks English, <laughs> which is a nice thing. You know, it's not always focused on. But when it comes to appointing a head coach or signing a new player, it can just make everything a lot easier if the person speaks the language. Yeah, just to, to go in on the, the goals and assists as well, I think it's 50 goals and, and 20 assists in 132 senior games. So you're looking at pretty much one in, in two games for, for a 21-year-old. You touched on it a little bit before in the fact that he is only 21. He's had those three senior seasons. You maybe want a, a slightly bigger sample size, but I suppose it's... It's kind of a situation where it's a player who, for a 21-year-old, that is quite a lot of experience, isn't it? I suppose Diogo Jota didn't have a huge amount more, even though he was slightly older. He maybe didn't have quite so many seasons of, of senior football. Is is there a kind of argument to say that this would be maybe one of few cases where you would go for a player of, of that sort of age because there is enough evidence sort of in that backlog to, to take a look at? Well, I've said before on the podcast, I can't remember if it was on Lars Nanfield or or another one that I've appeared on as a guest. But I got asked to think why Liverpool don't sign strikers, basically. And it's it's a tricky one, but one of the reasons I think behind it is obviously Liverpool like to like to jump on players as they're just about to become something more, basically, and they're just starting to showcase what they can do and stuff. And I think when it comes to strikers, because strikers are kind of most of the game takes place in the penalty box. The way in which a striker basically bursts onto the scene is by scoring lots of goals. And if you're scoring lots of goals, everyone's aware of you. Um, so there's probably going to be a queue. And it's, I think it's difficult for Liverpool to, to spot these players, to spot a striker who is also drifting under the radar, but capable of becoming an elite performer. It's really difficult, that. And obviously... I think the pool of strikers anyway is smaller. You know, there's generally not that many around. They also have to be have to generally fit the Liverpool mold, which is versatile and um fast and aggressive without the ball and stuff. So I think generally Liverpool targeting the strikers, there's just not really been that many for Liverpool to get. But when it comes to Jonathan David, he seems to be the type of player who is probably gonna get a big move. And 
if it's going to be to Liverpool, Liverpool probably will have to move quicker than maybe they, maybe they want, you know, and they might have to spend a little bit more than they want because, as I said, these strikers tend to they, they just go quicker. As soon as, a, as soon as a striker starts to score goals, you know, 15 and above or whatever, straight away they're getting linked with moves all over the place. Look at, look at Calvert-Lewin, for example. Calvert-Lewin last season, no one really, no one was really speaking about him as, as that much of a, of a big hitter. It only took him to go on a a bit of a streak in the first half of the season. He was getting linked with moves to Manchester United, so it doesn't take much for a striker to get linked with these moves. And David is a striker. He's getting linked around a little bit. And as you say, when it comes to getting them to Anfield, if Liverpool want to do that, maybe they'll have to move quicker than they usually do. But, you know, having said that, we have just established that he's got three professional seasons under his belt now, so it's a fair amount to go on. I think that kind of ties in as well with the fact that when Liverpool do have to replace Roberto Firmino, I think there's an argument to say that he's maybe of the the current group one of the most difficult ones to replace. I think obviously Van Dijk will be very hard to replace when the time comes because of you know such a, a high level. But just in terms of, of the style and the way that he plays, Roberto Firmino is is borderline impossible to to replace. But do you think you've seen enough so far to to suggest that maybe David could be? something along those lines for Liverpool, even if it meant they had to to evolve long-term and, and maybe play slightly differently. Is there, is there a little bit of Firmino in there, do you think? Yeah, I think there is. I think when it comes to Firmino, he's obviously a very unique player and it remains to be seen actually whether Klopp had any sort of involvement in that because he was bought before Klopp's time. Um, but he came from the Bundesliga. Klopp was very quick to make him central to virtually everything. He praised him more than Mane and Salah over the years, really. But he's obviously a very unique type of player. I actually think Liverpool maybe tried to get a a rotation cheap version of him using some form of similar players model to identify what ended up being Takumi Minamino, in my opinion. But I think since he's came, maybe hasn't really lived up to the standard required. It was a bit of a risk, I think, that Liverpool have take Liverpool have been willing to take hasn't really paid off. But I think with with David, I think he's a bit less like Minamino and Firmino. A bit more product to his game in terms of putting a ball on the back and a bit more instinct to his game in terms of naturally scoring and assisting maybe. But I think he's got he's got kind of that stocky nature maybe that he's difficult to knock off the ball and I think Firmino's certainly got that about him. He can probably drop off because um, he's played as a strike partnership for the past year, as I've said. So that usually involves the two players dovetailing, one player dropping off, one player running in behind and things. So I think he'd be different to Firmino. I don't think it'd be... I'm not sure you could maybe label it as a replacement because I think when you say replacement, people naturally think like for like. I don't think it'd be like for like. Uh, but he, I think he could offer elements of, of Firmino's game. And I don't think he'd... I don't think he'd um, stifle the likes of Mane and Salah, for example, some forwards would maybe, some strikers would maybe cause problems for Mane and Salah and what they want to do. I think David would, would complement them fairly well. Yeah, it's a real balance, isn't it? it? That was something I was going to say as well, just in terms of sort of what Liverpool need from a centre-forward. We know how much the, the goals tend to come from from out wide, even though Salah and Mane are not going to be around for, for the next 10 years or so. You do wonder, you know, could there be say, not that it would be Erling Haaland just because of the price tag, but a player like that who is just an out-and-out goal scorer through the middle, I'm not 100% sure whether that would 
necessarily work with the, the system that Liverpool have got now. I don't know what you think on that. W would it work to have someone who was purely a goal scorer through the middle with Salah and Mane either side? Or if you were going to go down that route, would it almost make sense to, to have slightly different wingers in that system? I don't know. Just, just from sort of hypothesising about it, it doesn't quite make sense that you could have all three players doing that job. It, it kind of feels like two from three or, or maybe one who scores 50 or whatever there's kind of a balance not everyone can do that job it, it kind of have to to be split between that front three yeah as you say it is a balance you know some people's i see the odd quote every now and then saying like x team doesn't score enough goals from midfield or, or whatever it is and while that may be true in some cases at bottom line is it doesn't overly matter where you're scoring the goals as long as they come um and i think when it comes to liverpool obviously we've been scoring goals for the past few seasons in what you'd maybe label as a bit of an unconventional way. But as long as they're coming, it's not really a problem. I do I do think that there's different ways of of using your attack. And when, when it comes to the current team that Liverpool have got, obviously it'd be nice if Liverpool could get a striker who could maybe thrive from crosses, for example. Because you look at Roberts on one side, you look at Trent on the other side. And you look at the set piece work Liverpool tends to do. There's a fair amount of crosses coming into the box when it comes to how Liverpool attack. So if you've got a striker in the box who's good in the air, he's probably going to benefit from that. But then if you look at a lot of the strikers who are good there, really, usually they're not that mobile. So you need you, you, you would then need to merge the two of those. They need to be good off the ball, good presses of the ball and stuff. So again, that's that mobility thing, that's that work rate thing coming into it. I will say, I think, you know, Harry Kane is a... He's obviously not going to come to Liverpool. I'm not, that, I'm not going to go down that route. But he's a player who, over the past year certainly, has offered Firmino-like benefits on a pitch while also scoring 20 himself comfortably. So I do think it's possible. I don't think... Um, like I think I think if you, over the past year, took Firmino out of Liverpool's team and put Kane in it, I don't think Salah Mane would have suffered much from the goals Kane would have got. Because I think Kane still has that natural game that would benefit those two because of his tendency to drop off and things. So, yeah, it's there's so many different things, so many different elements got, that go into it. But I think ultimately you want a side that you don't have to give too many instructions to for it to work. I think it's nice to have a team that just naturally works. The, the teammates naturally benefit each other. Like... Regardless of what tactic Klopp would instruct, if you were to make a front three of Mane that side, Salah that side, Firmino through the middle, it just works without anyone having to do it. Firmino naturally comes to the ball. Mane will run in behind, Salah will run in behind. Mane's right foot, Salah's left foot. It just works. And if you look at, I used the example of Leicester when Rodgers first took over because he used Jamie Vardy as a striker who was obviously inclined to run in behind. And be a bit of a poacher and kind of nothing else. But because he's running behind all the time, he's stretching the defence and creating space in the number 10 area, which is where Madison and Tillemans were sitting. Madison and Tillemans aren't natural centre mids, so you could argue, is that a bit of a concern? But then behind them, you had Wilfred and Didi, who's like a, he's like a spider, you know, he, the amount of ground he can cover, the balls he wins. So it was just a perfect little... System, yeah, just a, a, a naturally complementary system, and I think 
that's kind of what you want to build. You want to build a squad that just works, a squad where each player's got natural traits that benefits his teammates without much instructions needed. Um, I'm not sure how Liverpool will do that. There's different ways he can do it. But given the state of the current squad, I mean, at the ages of certain players and stuff, it'll be interesting to see how the squad develops over the next few years. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting couple of, of transfer windows, isn't it? I think certainly, I can certainly see Jonathan David doing that kind of role moving forward. And you'd imagine there's probably still three or four seasons of, of Mohamed Salah. Who knows with, with Sadio Mane, even if you swapped out Mane and, and put Jota on that left-hand side, I think you'd still have that same sort of, of need to, to balance that front three. So just before we, we move on and, and talk about a few other players, Harry Kane will be one of them. You mentioned him. We'll come on to, to him shortly. But just in, in terms of, of the finances of Jonathan David, the, the suggestion seems to be that Lille are fairly in need of, of money. They'd be prepared to, to sell him for a reasonable sort of Liverpool-type fee. I think they paid €30 million Euros for him last summer. It probably wouldn't take too much more than that to get him out this summer. Is that the kind of fee that you could see Liverpool looking at? Obviously, they've done it with, with Jota. Even Mane and Salah were kind of in that 30 to €40 million sort of bracket. Do you think that's a fair price for, for what Jonathan David brings? And obviously, we mentioned before, it's it's been three senior seasons, one season in France. Would Liverpool sort of pay that that kind of money or, or is that possibly a, a slight risk? Would you would you possibly prefer to see them maybe wait another 12 months and, and then see? Of course, then you run the risk, of course, of uh, the price being considerably more than, than what it is. It, it, again, it's a balance, isn't it? Well, the crucial word, what you've just said then there for me is is risk. I think when it comes to the sign Liverpool usually make, particularly up front, they are usually in that 30 to 40 million pound bracket and that's a fair amount. You know, that's a lot of money. Yeah. But I think each each one of those players who's been signed, Mane, Salah and Jota, there's just been very, very little risk attached to those signs because of the, the evidence maybe that this player was clearly going to keep doing well at Anfield once surrounded by an attacking system. You know, what Salah did in Rome, what Jota was doing at Wolves, despite playing in a, a system that very rarely even saw the ball and he was regularly having to assume possession in his own half and stuff. Mane, based on what he was doing at Southampton, again, Southampton with a mid-table side, really. Um, but these players had enough minutes behind them, enough proof really, that they were going to keep performing and keep evolving, maybe. That Liverpool could pay 30, 40 million and not really bat an eyelid. I think it's similar with Canate. You know, Canate's again, very young, but he's been around for quite a few years now. Liverpool have got a fair amount of evidence there. And I, I always go back to, I think Liverpool have been stung majorly by Andy Carroll. I think when Liverpool signed Andy Carroll, it, it scarred the club. I, I do think it did, because it was 35 million for a player who... Liverpool seemed to just jump on. Liverpool didn't, didn't seem planned. It seemed rushed. And I think that's what Liverpool have made sure that they've done moving forward. They've minimised risk. And I think when it comes to David, although I think he's probably worth around that price, it's just a risk. There'd be more risk attached to signing him for that fee compared to a Mane or a Salah or a Jose. Just because he's a fair few years younger, been doing it less so far, and he has only performed in Belgium and France. 
So there's just a bit more of a chance that it could go wrong, and I don't think Liverpool will like that. Um, maybe another season will be enough for Liverpool to then make make the leap or whatever. But it's whether Liverpool deem the price to be worth the risk. Obviously, with a player like Simakas, for example, thirty million, it's worth the risk if it goes wrong. Minamino, seven and a half million, it's worth the risk if it goes wrong. Not a problem. Thirty-five million, it's a little bit more steep. I think it's interesting as well that it seems like Ismail Assar was higher up on the list last summer than Jonathan David. And I suppose you would assume that that is because he hadn't done it in England. I think Saar had a, a decent season last season, probably wouldn't have, have been as good as what Diogo Jota was for Liverpool. But it is certainly going to be interesting to, to see what they do. I certainly would think that they would sign another forward, certainly if Shakiri was to leave, possibly one or two others as well. That would free up a little bit of money and possibly Jonathan David. Could be one of those to, to keep an eye on, but uh, we will, of course, keep you updated across Blood Red and the Liverpool Echo if there are any developments on that throughout the summer. But uh, it's fairly quiet at Liverpool on the, the transfer front, Josh, compared certainly to Manchester City, Manchester United and Chelsea. They seem to be wanting to throw a lot of money about, at least. And I thought the second half of the show, we could have a, a little bit of a, a chat about that. Obviously, Harry Kane is the big story this week. Jack Grealish as well. I think both of those are, are really interesting for Manchester City. I think for me, and I don't know if you agree, but Jack Grealish probably wouldn't make a, a huge difference to City. I think he's a really good player, but possibly not £100 million worth of, of footballer considering the players that they've already got. Harry Kane, though, is a very different proposition. They've not got anybody as good as him or who does a, a similar job to him. I think that one would be the real scary one for me. Well, this is the painful thing about the uh, transfer season because very, very often you you will find that it's not necessarily well. Sometimes it is, I suppose, but it's not it's not necessarily what Liverpool are doing that's making fans of the club panic. It's what other clubs do usually, and you can't help but look at your next door neighbour and think, you know, have they got any shiny new toys? And when it comes to the players, I mean, Chelsea haven't really signed anyone yet. Um, City haven't signed anyone yet because of the players they're getting linked with. It's just causing a little bit of uproar in the Liverpool camp. But when it comes to City, the numbers are astronomical. I mean, they are insane numbers. I agree with you when it comes to Grealish because he... I, I wouldn't even rule out that he's not, an, a, not a £100 million player. But I don't think he's a £100 million player for City. I think that's... that's I would agree on that one. I don't think he's going to make £100 million worth of difference to Manchester City. Um. In terms of the points that he he might add onto City's team next season if he was to play in, in every game, five maybe most. I, I can't see much more than that. Um, I, although although I do think he's he's very well suited to. Him. I think if he was I think if he was to go there, I think he'd play as number eight. I think he'd be the the long term heir to David Silva and what David Silva was doing. Obviously, with um, you got a midfield three there with maybe Rosdy at the base. Uh, Grealish on the left and De Bruyne on the right as a trio, but then where does Gundogan play? So it gives Pep options certainly. I think that's another one of the reasons Grealish will be of interest to him because he can play virtually anywhere apart from up front. Um, so he's and I think naturally as well the way um, the way he just naturally draws players to him, like he's got that gravity about his game, and then once he does that, he then releases the ball. And that, that's a skill that Pep has been teaching his players for, for years and years. So for Grealish to just do it off his own back anyway, just natural parts of his game, 
people love that. So I'm not surprised at the links, to be honest. Um, hopefully that one doesn't happen, but I think that one's more likely to happen personally. Villa already seem to me like the like the the balance of a place, so I wouldn't be surprised if that one did happen. But yeah, when it comes to Kane, it is a bit of a frightening prospect, isn't it? Considering the the clinical nature of that player and the numbers he's bagged at Spurs over the years, you know, if you was to put him in, if you was to put him in that City side, and Pep was to give him the service, which I, which I think he would, if, you, you you know, that's a lot of goals that. It's, it's the one the one piece I think that they've been missing, isn't it? They've got the creative midfielder, they've got the wingers, they've got all of the other players. I'm just not massively convinced on Gabriel Jesus. I think he's he's all right. He's absolutely fine for, for most Premier League teams. He would walk into to their team. But I just think he is almost the, the weak link in Manchester City. I think if, if Gabriel Jesus is up front against you, you're kind of all right if, if you're Van Dijk and Gomez at Liverpool or you know, Manchester United. You, you kind of look at that and think, yeah, we can deal with that. Harry Kane, though, is just it's just another level, isn't it? And as you say, he's, he's again taken his game to another level. He's done some of the other bits around the game. His passing is, is brilliant. Just the whole sort of package with him. He is, for me, the perfect player that, that Pep Guardiola would love. Well, one thing with Jesus, I think he... If you look at his numbers, he actually shoots a lot. But how much of that is a product of the service he gets at Manchester City is another story. He was shooting about as often as Aguero was. The difference was Aguero found the net with lots of his shots. Jesus has a little bit of, I don't know, he just misses the target sometimes. Doesn't Not as clinical, maybe, you could put. And I think when it comes to analytics, generally the concept of finishing is is argued a little bit as to whether it's actually even a thing you know some people just suggest that it just it just happens it just comes and goes it's um it's not really a thing you know but certain players suggest that it is and Kane is one of them Kane's a player who according to stats bombs numbers so that's four seasons worth of data he's overperformed xg in every season um non-penalty xg that is so this is excluding penalties. He scored about fifteen point three goals more than expected, um, and he's in the he's in the green in all four of those seasons. So what that means is, like, you know, XG is just basically founded upon the the finishing ability of the average player. You know, so a shot inside the box or whatever might be valued at zero point four or whatever, um, and that's because. That the average player that scored roughly forty percent of the time. Also, when it comes to Kane, he just tends to convey beyond that level. So he he just finishes to a high level. So most of his goals tend to come from just top finishing. Um, but and it, it's been a few years since he benefited from a team around him that was producing loads for him to attempt for them to then post ridiculous numbers. So, in he was age 24 when he had his best season. That was when Spurs were at the peak. That was when Pochettino was very much the next big thing and stuff. And Kane took about 5.2 shots per 90 in the Premier League. That's not, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> that's like uh, Cristiano and Messi and Suarez at Liverpool and you know, over five shots per 90 is a lot. For, for perspective, the, the 
player who took the most shots in the Premier League last season on a pay 90 basis was Kane. But it was 3.8 pay 90. So for him to take five a few years back, you know, that was a lot. And when he was when when he was given that platform, when he was taking not that many shots, that was the season that he scored 30. That's his best season. That was when Salah just somehow scored more than him, which is very unlucky for him. And then the year before that, Kane scored 29. So that was when he was part of a dominant Pochettino Spurs system. That was when he scored his most goals. Now, since then, he hasn't scored as many. He's got 17 and he scored 18. Last season, he scored 23. But Spurs haven't been that dominant outfit since City are. So I, I am inclined to think that if Kane was to go there, he'd be presented with what he was presented with a few years back when he was scoring 30 a season. So I think if he was to go there, I think he's getting 30 pretty comfortably if he if he plays if he plays enough obviously if he plays like I don't know a fair amount of minutes if he, if he, if he starts say 25 to 30 games something like that I don't know 35 games or so I think he's I think he's easily capable of scoring 30 there and if you look at what that means in terms of points that's a that's a fair amount of points if you're scoring 30 goals yeah, you can certainly see why City want him. And you can imagine just, you know, even just thinking about it in terms of, you know, just from what we've seen of City, De Bruyne, Bernardo Silva, Raheem Sterling, all of those players, you can you can just imagine exactly how much he'd enjoy being in that team, I think. But uh, I suppose the, the one thing that would make me think he wouldn't be worth spending maybe 150, 160 million, whatever it's going to take to, to get him from Tottenham, I suppose this doesn't matter hugely for Manchester City because of their backers and, and their owners. But he is 28. He's had a couple of injury problems. I don't think you necessarily get £160 million worth of, of footballer from Harry Kane. But then, as you say, if he guarantees you 30, 35 goals for the next three or four seasons, maybe that's just what they're thinking. It's it's a short-term fix. It's an easy way of, of getting those golden. Yeah, I mean, 28 feels old now really doesn't it but it's it's maybe not that bad like one thing i was surprised about recently when i was writing about fernandinho when fernandinho signed for for city i think he was a hang on i'm just gonna check it now i think he was 27 28 28 he was Yeah. yeah when fernandinho signed for city he was 28 and he's still there now obviously doing a job in a different way to kane was but that was 30 million for a 28 year old who had never played anywhere near Europe's top five leagues. So that was a risk that's that's paid off despite him being fairly old and uh, worth a lot. And Aguero has just finished like his, his service at City at the age of about 33. 33 is now leaving the club, and up until that age, at least with Pep Guardiola's system around him, he hasn't really struggled. Apart from recently, obviously, he's still from injury. But when, I mean, when he's on a pitch, he's always scored goals fairly consistently. So I think City would probably look at it as, yes, he's 28, but we'll have him doing what he's doing now for like at least at least another four years, maybe. I think they'll probably view it. Whether that's right or wrong is another story. Yeah. But that would be certainly a reason why Liverpool would have absolutely no interest in paying £160 million for it. For a 28-year-old player who's reasonably injury-prone, you know, but when when you're Manchester City, this is what you're competing against, and 
you know, this is what seems to get supporters on the back of of FSG sometimes, which is incredible because, in my opinion, you know, FSG have been criticised in the past for for how they maybe don't really get Liverpool culture wise, and I think that's true. I think the, the they've certainly got stuff to learn in that department. But I think if Liverpool, I've said this before, if Liverpool were to go and spend 160 million pounds on a striker, I don't think that would fit with Liverpool culture wise. That 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 just wouldn't. That's not a Liverpool thing. It's just it's a it's not Liverpool. <laughs> it's yeah. just not. And yeah. uh, so I I wouldn't. I'd hope I hope the deal doesn't happen for the sake of the Premier League. To be honest, because I don't think it's I don't think it's healthy at all. No, I think Spurs. I think it's good for the league if Spurs can keep Kane. I don't think it says much for the league at all if Manchester City can go and spend over two hundred million in one window on the best player from Villa and the best player from Spurs. It's just a, uh, it is a bit daft, isn't it? Do you think it ends title hopes for for anybody? Do you think Liverpool would be scared by it if Harry Kane went there? Personally, I think it would be, you know, a, a big sort of dent in the confidence going into next season for, for a couple of other teams. But I don't think it would necessarily just blow everybody else out of the water. I'd still give Liverpool a more than fighting chance of, of beating City to, the, uh, to the, the Premier League title, even if you know they, they got Kane this summer. I think you know there's, like, there's almost a limit on how many points one player can add, isn't there? They can't be, can't be that many points ahead of Liverpool because Liverpool are going to be sort of at that sort of 90-point-ish mark anyway, aren't they? Well, that's how you've got to view it. You, you know, last season without Kane, City got 86 points. That was kind of without a striker. 86 points is a lot. That's standard English title winners amount. So if you don't add Kane to that, it's it's hard to improve on, but I do think he would improve it. I'm not sure how much he would improve it and how much he would improve it would then, it would then be where Liverpool come in, I suppose. Liverpool got... 97 points and then 98 points. I think if City were to add Kane, I think he's potentially adding 10. I think he's potentially adding 10 points there. Uh, I saw a, I saw a recent recent piece, actually. I might have mentioned it last week on last week's show, but I think Sancho was deemed to be worth about six points. Varane deemed to be worth about six points. I think Kane, in that City side especially, could be worth about 10. That would take City to about 96 points. So Liverpool would have to get back to that that really dominant period that they had under under Klopp, where they were winning like thirty of their thirty-eight league games, thirty-two of their thirty-eight league games. You know, you've got to be doing that to to contest with a team that's getting ninety-six points plus. I do think, despite what you might read, I do think Liverpool are still the biggest competitors to City. I had a little think about it before. And, the best goalkeeper in the league, I think he's at Liverpool. Best right back at the league, I think he's at Liverpool. The best left back in the league is at Liverpool. The best centre back in the league is at Liverpool. The best DM in the league is at Liverpool. And I think arguably the best forward in the league is at Liverpool. Obviously, there's more to it than that. But do not forget how good Liverpool's strongest eleven is when they're all on the pitch. It's been a long time since they were, since they were all on the pitch. So I wouldn't rule it out by any means that that City would just run away with it if they added Kane. But it would it would certainly make Liverpool's task a lot harder, and for me, it would it would cement City as, as favourites. Um, whereas right now, I, that wouldn't be the case. Right now, I think you could maybe flip a coin, but with Kane, it would it would put them as favourites for me. 
Sporting Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, it certainly makes things a lot more interesting and a lot more competitive at the, the top end of the Premier League. And there's a couple of other teams in that sort of mix as well. I assume Manchester United and, and Chelsea are both sort of thinking they could be Premier League champions next season, particularly Chelsea after what they did in the Champions League last season. You'd expect them to to want to kick on again. And we're going to talk about both of, of those. We'll start with, with Manchester United, obviously already signed Jadon Sancho. Looks like they're going to get Rafael Varane as well. I think that's just sort of waiting on him being able to, to travel into the country because of, of COVID regulations and, and stuff like that. But looks like that one is going to, to get done. For me, though, I'm not quite convinced that even with those two signings, they're quite at Manchester City and Liverpool's level yet. I think they are going to take a, a big step forward. I think Sancho is is a big player and, and a player that they needed. Again, Rafael Varane, big upgrade in an area that they needed it. But I'm just not quite convinced. And I think it, it, it's for two reasons. One is the manager, I don't think, is at the same level as a, a Guardiola or a Klopp. And, and the other thing as well is their midfield. I think they still need somebody in that area to take them to that next level. But you can't deny it. It's it's been a it's been a good summer for them if they can get those two deals done. Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd like to provide an alternative take on that if I could. I'd like to come out with a bit of an edgy take that it's it's actually going to go wrong. Or sometimes you can do that. Sometimes the the, the wider perception of a certain transfer is oh, it's it's a serious statement and all this, but sometimes it's not. And and you can actually put a bit of context on that. But when it comes to Sancho and when it comes to Varane, for me, they are just two really good signings and there's not much more you can add to that, really. I think Varane addresses an issue that United had in the heart of the defence when it comes to Maguire and Lindelof pace-wise. I think Varane would allow them to climb a few yards up the pitch. As a result of doing that, usually you will face fewer shots, which means you should concede fewer goals. Obviously, he'll offer more in the air as well when it comes to a comparison with Lindelof. And then there's that obvious intangible thing that he's a proven winner. I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure what that means in terms of points, but it probably does make some form of difference. Um, And then when it comes to Sancho, you know, Solskjaer's toyed with different ideas of how, how to fill that right-sided attacker void. Dan James has played there, Pogba's played there, Rashford's played there, and I think Greenwood's probably been the best there. But it's been it's been kind of like a fix-it-as-you-go type thing, whereas I think Sancho will could offer a permanent solution there. He offers goals, he offers assists, he offers a lot, to be honest. Sancho's a really good player, can't wait to see him in the Premier League. And I actually think the price is all right as well, compared to yeah. you know some of the deals that are floating about. I think Sancho for 70-odd million, considering he could be doing this for the next decade, I think that's a great catcher. So, two really good signs, but I agree with you again, yeah. I think when it comes to winning the title, I think they've got a squad that could win the title. Um, But they do have a bit what looks like a weak midfield in comparison to some of the rivals. And although I am a big believer in you're only as good as your players, I do think it gets to a point where your head coach will start to influence things a bit, a bit, you know, really marginal differences. And I agree with you when you, when, you know, I think Klopp is, I think Klopp, Pep and Tuchel are just on a different level to Solskjaer. I actually don't think Solskjaer is that bad compared to some others. I think he's laughed at gen- generally on Merseyside. Um, but I don't think he's that bad. I just don't think he's 
Manchester United level, really. You know, Manchester United levels winning every week, winning, competing for the Champions League every week. And I'm not sure he's quite that. It'll be it'll be really interesting though, to see how he does this season now that he has got the players. He's, he, he, he's got fewer excuses now, considering the business that they've done for him. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how they do this season. Uh, I do think they'll be comfortably top four. And they could be they could be pushing for the title. It could be a four-way push for the title. I wouldn't rule that out, just given the players. But when it comes to Solskjaer, yeah, he probably is a, a step below when it comes to the three managers he's going to be competing with. Just in terms of that sort of block of, of four, obviously Liverpool, the two Manchester clubs and, and Chelsea, just before we move on to, to Chelsea to finish. I mean, to me, that, that feels like it's going to be those four who finish in the top four next season. It, it doesn't feel like the top four will, will even be a race, to be honest. It just sort of feels like those four teams have got a fairly big buffer. I think Leicester obviously have a good good squad, good manager and, and that sort of thing. Tottenham again, you know, they were miles behind Arsenal, miles behind where they should be. It kind of feels like there's a distinct four teams now in the Premier League that you would just expect at, at the start of this season to be the four that finish in those Champions League spots. Yeah, I would agree. I think the, the gap's going to be... I mean, the gap last season was actually only, only one point between fourth and fifth. But I think next season it's going to be a fair amount. I think... I actually think Leicester have, have been really well run for a few years now, and I like the business that they've, that they've done this summer as well. You know, they've added Patterson Dacher, who's been spoken about from a Liverpool perspective plenty. They've added Sumare as well. There might be some others that I'm overlooking. Um, but, and I, I like Rodgers too. I think Rodgers is, is generally decent, and I think they've got a good squad. But I, I just think, considering what Liverpool, Chelsea, Man United and Man City have got and the advantages that have maybe got in the market it just makes it so hard for a team like Leicester to actually break through um, I think if they were going to do it it might have been last season or the season before but this season I think they're going to find it particularly hard when it comes to Spurs it looks like they're losing Harry Kane and I think Adam Nuno again I'm interested to see how Nuno might do but to me, he doesn't look like the type of coach who will instill an analytics type brand of football, which would be, you know, dominant, lots of shots, very few shots faced, lots of territory, all that. I can't see Spurs representing that brand of football personally, but it'd be interesting to see what he does. But I don't think Spurs are going to challenge particularly. And I suppose Arsenal, I don't know what's happened to Arsenal over the years. It's an absolute mess. Um you know, the, the, their recruitment's been so bad and they've had issues with um, injuries. You know, most of a lot of their investments over the years has gone on key players such as Thomas Party and Kieran Tierney and you can't get them on the pitch. So they might be decent signs, but they're never there really to, to influence things over the course of a league campaign anyway when it's 38 games. So I think the top four's established. I'd, I'd be amazed if, if they them four teams don't finish in the top four places but in terms of the order you could probably flip a coin to be honest it's it's, it's going to be a competitive season yeah it certainly is we'll move on then to, to the final team in that four Chelsea we've not really spoken a huge amount about them it, it sort of feels like they a bit like Manchester City to be honest we're just sort of missing 
one crucial piece of, of that puzzle. They wanted a number nine. They've let Olivier Giroud leave. Obviously, he didn't play a huge amount. Looks like Tammy Abraham might be leaving as well at some point in the next couple of weeks. So there's a, a pretty big gap there. And it looks like they might be going back for, for Romelu Lukaku. A hundred million euro bid apparently has been turned down. And I think, again, that would be that would be a player that would add a lot to Chelsea. Already a Chelsea team that obviously are European champions and looked really, really well organised under Thomas Tuchel. Well, this is what you're competing with, you know, and this is this is why Liverpool fans are maybe getting a little bit frustrated because the, the, the amounts that our rivals are spending, it is incredible, you know, to be able to offer £100 million for one player who, you know, I'm aware that Liverpool have kind of done it when it comes to Van Dijk, but Van Dijk was obviously very, very transformational. How transformational Lukaku might be, I'm not really sure, even though I think Lukaku's brilliant. Um... I can see why this why they're looking for this striker type player though, because you know, last season when you look at expect goals under an overperformance, the most overperforming team was Manchester City, funnily enough. They scored about ten goals more than expected. Same with Spurs, level with Spurs really. Liverpool we know underperformed by a lot. Liverpool underperformed by nine goals, which was the fourth worst. But Chelsea were also there. Chelsea underperformed by 8.4 goals. And I think, I'm just going to double-check it now, I think it was the same the season before. So, well, not as bad. Now, that season before, they performed roughly in line with, with expectation. They scored roughly what they were expected to score. No overperformance, no underperformance. But I can understand why they want this this clinical striker. Maybe he's going to put the ball in the back of the net. They're probably fed up with watching... Timo Werner and, and things like that, seeing what he's like in an goal. I don't think he's much of a problem personally, because if you look at his numbers, I think he's still had a great season. Um, but when it comes to this striker, I can see really why they want to do it. And they're probably looking at the squad and just thinking we we need virtually nothing, but we we can buy somebody. So they're, they're either looking for you know a, a 60 million plus centre back in Jules Koundé or a elite striker in, in Lukaku. So in terms of the players that could improve Chelsea, there's probably a list of about 10. And that's that's kind of it. Um, so again, it's a transfer that I hope doesn't happen. Again, for the sake of football, really. You know, keep <laughs> keep Lukaku with Inter Milan. Let's, let's have some form of competition across different tournaments and stuff. But it just seems like all the best players in Europe at the minute are just coming to the Premier League. You know, Leon Bailey going to Aston Villa. Varane going from... Real Madrid to um, Man United and Lukaku potentially coming over and everyone's just to send on the Premier League because all the money's in the Premier League at the minute. But hopefully it's one that doesn't happen. Yeah, just to, to finish on Chelsea, I think it's it's really interesting because obviously Thomas Tuchel came in halfway through a season. He's got loads and loads of players to pick from, loads of, of options, can play a couple of different systems. They've got loads of, of squad depth and obviously you mentioned Timo Werner, Kai Havertz as well. They've both now had a full season, you'd expect them to get better. I think it's quite hard to, to gauge. I think Chelsea certainly won't be any worse than what they were last season, but just quite how much they push on. I, I suppose it depends on how much Timo Werner gets better, how much of an impact Thomas Tuchel can have in pre-season. I think they're almost a little bit more of a, an unknown than the two Manchester clubs. If you sort of take transfers out of it, obviously there's a bit more consistency with, with Solskjaer um, at United and Guardiola obviously at, at Manchester City but I think with Chelsea there's 
just a, a little bit more of an unknown with what what they might do next season. It, it might even come down to you know how they start the first sort of five or six games. If it goes well, that might be the kickstart for, for a really good season. I think they're the most interesting one out of, of the top four, really. Yeah, I would agree. And I think, obviously, there's this talk all the time, isn't there, about the whole new manager bounce type thing, whether it even is a thing and stuff. But it'll be interesting to see moving forward whether whether that end does tail off in that department and whether Tuchel... I thought when Tuchel came in, one thing I was really impressed by was he just didn't overthink it. He just came in quite clearly recognised that he had a top squad, reintegrated all their... The vocal players, maybe the leaders, maybe you'd say, you know, reintegrated Jorginho and Aspilicueta got back on the side and all that. Um, and it just, he just kind of, you know, didn't really change tactics in terms of the formation every week. He just kept kept it as it was, and he didn't really overthink it. But I think now that he's got more time, he's got a full pre-season. I do wonder how much we'll start to see his imprint on the team. Whether that might be a bad thing. Um, you know, whether he'll work on the attack a little bit more, considering how good Chelsea were defensively when he first came in, whether he'll now look at the attack as, right, this is where we need to improve. And as a result of trying to improve the attack, maybe your defence comes a little bit a little bit more leaky. Because last season, Chelsea scored 58 goals. That's, you know, that, that's four less than West Ham, four less than Leeds, 10 less than Spurs. So they, they were a little bit better when it comes to XG. When it comes to XG, they had the third best. But when it comes to actually finding the back of the net, they were nowhere near elite levels, you, you could say. So I wouldn't be surprised if Tuchel tries to address that. But then as a result, as I said, you know, you could you could make your team defensively or, or balance-wise a little bit worse. So, yeah, I totally agree. I think when it comes to uh, the top four next season, Chelsea are a bit of an unknown, even though they've they've got a Champions League behind them, which which is, is mad. But again, it's it's kind of unprecedented going into the season because it does feel like it could develop into, into a four-way fight. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a, one of the best title races for a while, I think, next season. It could be could be really interesting with up to four, certainly Liverpool and, and Manchester City, you'd imagine, would be in there. And then the other two, as you say, um, just sort of a little bit more unknowns. But I'm sure over the next few weeks, we'll sort of get a better idea of, of how that goes and where Liverpool fit into all of this. But I think that just about brings us to the end of today's show. Thanks very much for, for joining me, Josh. Some great insight there. Yeah, no worries, mate. Hope, hopefully you enjoyed your first appearance, I think it is, on uh, on Analyze Anfield. It is, yeah. A, a debut appearance. Not quite as, uh, as good as Guy Clark last week, but uh, <laughs> we got there in the end. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.